want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Mark 9 is found on page 845 of that Pew Bible. That's in front of you if you don't have your own copy. Or perhaps you could look on your phone. But I do want you to know that we can tell. We can tell if, if you're reading the Bible on your phone or if you're actually doing something else. I know you don't think that I can see you, but I actually can. I, uh, I also want to acknowledge um, it's rather warm in here this morning. We apologize for that. Thank you for your patience uh, with it. We're having some HVAC issues. And so we came in this morning. It was very hot. It's actually much cooler than it was. But I think you may find that as we get into the message a little bit, the topic of conversation, the heat might just be appropriate. I don't think I've told you the story about the tragic death of a farmer from South Africa named Marius Ells, who was mauled to death by his pet hippo named Humphrey in 2011. This occurred in November of that month, when the four, or of that year, when the 40-year-old Army Major Marius Ells was killed by the 1.2-ton hippo that he had adopted and tried to domesticate on a farm in the Free State Province. The body of Ells was found in a river with marks of being bitten by the huge animal several times, which he had earlier described as his son. Ells' body was found submerged in the river where he had been rescued. The hippo had been rescued from a flood six years earlier. And as the hippo grew too big for the people who adopted it, it was, it was brought by Ells uh, to his farm at the age of five months old. Photographs could be seen as the hippo grew of Ells even riding a five-year-old hippo's back. Humphrey's like a son to me. He's just like a human, he had said. There's a relationship between me and Humphrey that most people just don't understand. They think that you can only have a relationship with dogs and cats and domestic animals, but I have a relationship with the most dangerous animal in Africa. However, Els' wife, Louise, a pharmacist, had a different story to tell. She expressed misgivings about the hippo as the giant animal had caused trouble before. Earlier in that year of 2011, a 52-year-old man and his 7-year-old grandson had to climb a tree and stay atop of the tree for over two hours after being chased by Humphrey. Similarly, Humphrey had been accused of killing the baby, the baby cows or the calves of Els' business partner, the animal also frequently broke out of its enclosure and chased golfers at the local golf club. Els, who had also domesticated and kept giraffes and rhino, claimed that the sound of his voice would bring Humphrey back home. He regarded the hippo as lovable and a gentle giant. Except, years later, Humphrey mauled Els in the river on that fateful day and left him submerged underwater for several hours, causing his death. He did not take his lovable pet seriously enough. And it cost him his life. You know, there's a danger when you don't take seriously 
something that can seriously kill you. Jesus, sitting with his disciples, takes the opportunity to explain to them something that we all don't take seriously enough. Something that could seriously kill us. He talks to them about the seriousness of their sin. And so follow with me as we read Mark 9, starting at verse 42. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in private, and this is what he says to them. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus had just finished using a child as an example of someone who has little status in a society, but would be welcomed despite his small status into the kingdom of God. In fact, in the midst of the disciples arguing uh, who among them was the greatest, Jesus highlights to them that status and greatness in God's economy is found in being last, not being first, and found in serving, not looking to be served. And even the least of these, even the ones of small stature and even small status in society could actually serve and be served. They would have the benefits of God in their life. And now he gives them a sharp warning. He says that whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin it would be better for them if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus is continuing his teaching and he's shifting now from the idea of status to the idea of responsibility for those who follow him. And he speaks of the little ones just like he had in the previous section. And just like in the previous section, he's not he's using a child as an example, but he's not explicitly teaching just about children. He's speaking about those who are vulnerable, those of lower status, including children. And in many ways, we are all spiritually vulnerable at different phases in life. And it is a certain irony that we find ourselves in our most 
secure place eternally when we come to faith in Jesus and also, at least temporarily, in a vulnerable place. This is what I mean by that. When you put your faith in Christ, God forgives you of your sin. He cleanses you. He welcomes you into his family. The spirit of God causes your heart to come alive and you are secure. But at the same time, you're young. You are young and trying to figure out what it means to follow God faithfully in this life. You just don't know what you don't know yet. And as a result, you need people who are a little farther along on the journey to teach you, to help you, to guide you, and to show you God's word. Here, Jesus warns those who are his followers who have been followers for a while, to take great care in how they lead the new followers or the vulnerable. And if you manipulate them with regard to the things of God and intentionally lead them into sin, he says, there is a great, great consequence that awaits. And the image of having a millstone tied around your neck and then have it cast into the sea so that you drown is quite graphic. If you think about it for more than a couple of moments. And it's an image that the disciples would recognize. In fact, Roman historians tell that this exact punishment was applied to an earlier Galilean leader who was a zealot and tried to lead an insurrection against the Roman occupiers in Israel. As he spoke the disciples could picture the drowned bodies waving and drifting with the current of the lake. Sin is a serious thing. And it's a serious thing to knowingly lead people into the seriousness of sin. And so Jesus gives them a warning. From this warning, he turns his attention to the individual and to their own lives and to our lives as his followers as he describes not just the serious responsibility that we have, but also the serious battle that every single one of us has in this life Let me remind you of it. He says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, the unquenchable fire, unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sin, as you know, is commonplace for Every single person on the planet, you are very familiar with this thing that we call sin, and so am I. Paul actually says in Romans chapter 6 that we are slaves to sin before we're united to Jesus Christ through faith in him. And what do slaves do? Slaves do exactly what its master tells it to do. 
you could not help but sin before you knew Christ. And because sin is so common, and because we are so well acquainted with it, we are tempted to think that it's not that serious. That it doesn't do serious damage. That sin isn't a serious offense to God. Because things that are really common rarely are serious. But Jesus speaks about it in the most serious type of description. This is a description of war. War against the sin in your life. It's better to kill parts of your body in this war that are causing you to sin and to live with the pain of injury because of this discipline than to, be, to let that sin be completely destructive to you if it's running rampant in your life. And make no mistake about it, that's exactly what unchecked sin will do. Now, of course, Jesus is not telling us to literally engage in self-mutilation. The Bible prohibits that in other places. And though there have been examples in church history of people who have taken this very literally, that's not the intention that he's trying to get to. So I don't hear any stories in the news about somebody going home from Old North and cutting their hand off. Eyes, hands, and the feet all represent a part of life and temptation that every single one of us has. They represent what we do, where we go, and what we see and desire. The hands represent our works, what we do. This is a basic instrument for accomplishing our purposes throughout our days. Do we do good or evil with these hands? How would you define the purpose of your days? If indeed they do tempt you to sin, those purposes, those desires, those works, if you're tempted to sin, then Jesus indicates that it would be better for you to cut those purposes and desires out of your life altogether than to suffer the consequences of what would come. The foot represents where we go. Do the places that you go tempt you to sin? Where do you go in person that represents that opportunity? The eye represents what we see and what we desire. It's often related to lust and sexual desires in the Bible, but it's also related to pride and envy and other sins of the attitude. And Jesus says these things are so serious that if you're tempted by them, you need to eliminate them from your life because the power of sin is profound. In his book, Tempted and tried, Russell Moore recounts an NPR program about a scientist named Temple Grandin. 
Temple Grandin was an autistic woman who was researching new ways to gently kill cows. It's an important issue because if the animals experience high levels of stress prior to their death, hormones gets, get released and it lowers the quality of the meat. And thus, Grandin had been exploring how to keep cattle calm as they were being led to the slaughter. Her research has led to one simple insight. Novelty distresses cows. So the key to keep everything is to keep everything in their lives feeling and looking as normal and natural as possible. You might summarize the techniques like this. Workers shouldn't yell at cows, Grandin said. They should never use cattle prods because they're counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them. Don't unnerve them. And above all, don't hurt them. Well, at least to the very end. Along the way, Grandin devised a new technology that has revolutionized the ways of big slaughter operations. In the system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck. Rather, they are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute which has gentle pressure that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sharp turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home the same kind of way that they've traveled many times before. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. The conveyor belt slightly lifts them gently upward. And then a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. And they are transitioned from cattle to meat. And they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. The pioneer of this technology to the slaughterhouses Grandin gives it an affectionate name. It's called the Stairway to Heaven. You know, forces are afoot right now <laughs> negotiating how to get you fat enough for consumption and how to get you calmly and without struggle to the cosmic slaughterhouse floor. That is the work of the devil. When your sin continues to provide a source of pleasure or comfort for you, over the course of time, it becomes harder and harder to see that it is leading you down the path of death. You might feel as though your life is really progressing quite well while abiding this pet sin of yours, and maybe you're even going up the stairway. It's so perfect and it was designed for you, and indeed it was. In many ways, the more tranquil you feel, the more endangered you are. Jesus says that these sins are much more serious than we think. That the consequence of sin is so severe 
that eliminating the temptation is really the only option to move forward. And it's important to note that he repeatedly references you, you, you. It's your hands, your foot, your eyes that he's talking about. He never actually gives the command that this is supposed to be communal in nature. This is intensely personal. You are not called, at least in this passage, to look on the sins of others and to kill the sins in them, only your own. And the metaphor indicates that there will be great personal pain to you as you exercise this kind of discipline to eliminate sins in your life. It hurts to cut something off. And it might hurt, at least temporarily, to eliminate sin. You know, I think sometimes we tend to think that improving ourselves is found only in adding more positive traits to our life than we had before. I mean, likely some of us uh, have thought that increased level of discipline in my life would be a good thing for me, that uh, increased discipline in my diet or how I use my time or discipline in learning or discipline in exercise will continue to help me to grow. Other times we might think that uh, proactively engaging and adopting in the fruit of the Spirit, as listed in the Bible, as characteristics, are good additions to my life. I want more love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Those things are good for me. And still others of us might think that if I read this book and gain this skill or have this category, that positive things will continue to grow within me as I add them to my life. And while these things sometimes are very, very helpful, and addition of these things, especially the fruit of the Spirit, is a wonderful gift of God to you, adding isn't always enough. Sometimes the way to growth is found through subtraction. War. Fighting. Killing, subtracting. Seriously kill the sin in your life before it seriously kills you. That is the message that Jesus is getting at. And he describes the horror of hell that comes if you don't. I'm sure it's not lost on you as I read it just a minute ago that the word hell is mentioned many times. We don't really talk about that very much in our culture anymore unless it's sort of a passing curse uh, along the way. Those certain words, damnation and hell, are used now as sort of common parlance instead of serious inquiry, but Jesus uses it very seriously right here. He says in verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you don't engage in the discipline of self-denial but live in ongoing sin, he indicates that you're not found in Christ and thus hell is the consequence. It's better to have the pain of self-denial than the pain of hell. 
And the word for hell here is the Greek word Gehenna. And that creates a picture in the mind of the disciples. Gehenna is a literal trash dump outside of town that is ever on fire and never ceasing. And thus, he indicates at least twice in this passage that literal hell is like this. The fire is not quenched and the inhabitants do not cease to exist in it. You might not think your sin is that serious. And you might not think that the consequences should be this serious. But Jesus makes no bones about it. Kill your sin because it's more serious than you think and the consequences are more serious than you can possibly bear. And here's the challenge then. The challenge becomes immediately very personal. What are you doing? Where are you going? What are you seeing that can lead you into sin? What are the sins in your life that have become so comfortable for so long that perhaps you no longer even feel the sting of conviction anymore? And as I think about this passage, I think that there's a couple of different ways that people would respond to something like this. I think the hopeful response is all of us get lax at times about certain things in our life and maybe even with sin in our life and we're tempted to think it's common and it's not that severe, it's not that important. And so the hopeful response is I need to start taking things way more seriously than I do. I think some, the natural response might be something along the lines of, I didn't want to talk about this stuff. I don't want to talk about my sin. I don't want to talk about hell. I don't want to think about it. And I wanted to come to church today and be super encouraged. But then Jesus talks about hell to his disciples. So the pastor has to talk about hell. And now I would rather just keep it all at arm's distance. I'd rather treat my hippo as my pet. And this is what I would say to that. I would say, I am so thankful that the Lord Jesus actually peels back the veil and gives us a glimpse into the things of greatest importance and greatest significance so that we know. So that you don't take a hippo home and think that it's all going to work out okay someday because it never, ever does. I'm so happy that he actually warns us so I don't get bit and end up at the bottom of the river. And so how do you kill it? How do you kill that sin? Well, it sounds simple, but we know it's much more complicated as you engage it in real life. You confess it to God. You confess to God. He knows already but he looks for a humble and contrite heart. You bring that sin into the light. Sin loves the darkness where it's hidden, where nobody knows about it, where it can continue to fester and grow. You bring it into the light. You tell your spouse or you tell a friend or you let somebody know. You don't pretend like it's not there. You don't deny it. The light can show it for what it really is and can help you to move past it. You eliminate the things 
that facilitate that sin in your life. You look for the opportunities that you're engaging in and you say, if that opportunity produces sin, then I'm going to change what I do, where I go, what I look at, what I say. And you recognize that God is gracious and he's so quick to forgive. And Jesus takes the guilt and the stain of that sin away when you do turn away from it and he actually replaces it with something better. He replaces it with righteousness, with purpose, and with joy. Your sin is more serious than you think it is. And so seriously kill it before it seriously kills you. Verses 49 and 50 mark the conclusion of the passage and they feel at first glance to be disconnected, but they actually continue with some of the ideas that Jesus is telling his followers. He continues the idea of fire and he combines it with salt and the different uses of salt. This is what he says. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 49, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In verse 49, the key to understanding it is found in the Old Testament idea of temple sacrifices that were offered to God by way of burnt offering and commanded to be accompanied with salt. This is seen in Leviticus and Ezekiel and Exodus. The salt speaks to the purity of the sacrifice. And everyone who follows the Lord Jesus offers themselves as a sacrifice to God for their entire life in response to the sacrifice that Jesus has made himself for us. So Romans 12, 1 speaks of this, how we become a sacrifice to God as an act of worship to him. And it's related to our righteousness and to the killing of sin in our life. Paul writes this in Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do you present your body holy and acceptable to God? Through the forgiveness that Jesus offers and through killing sin in your life. Salt also serves to preserve food in the ancient world, as you know. So as verse 49 points to the goodness and the purity of the sacrifice, verse 50 points to the goodness of preservation. Your holiness in life serves to to fight as a preservative in the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. And so your sacrifice to God is no longer to atone for sin. It is to resist sin. I imagine that you're familiar with how this relates to the gospel. Because here is the wonderful truth. There's only one that can erase sin. There's only one that can save us from the horrors of hell. There's only one that can pay the penalty or atone for sin. Jesus is the one. He died so that you might live. He rose again to restore you to God. He dies and rose again so that we might have the ability to resist sin in a new life with him. And only in him can you resist the sin that he warns us against. 
Perhaps you've heard the familiar phrase, a ship of fools. It was a common medieval motif used in literature and art, especially in religious satire. And one such satire is Hieromius Bosch's famous oil painting called A Ship of Fools. We're going to have it on the screen up here behind us. It's currently in the Louvre in Paris. And you'll be able to see a little bit of it. You can probably look it up better on your phone when you get home later today or something like that. There is an advantage to sitting in the front rows in church. Just saying. So in the painting, which is filled with symbolism, it shows 10 people aboard a small vessel, two, of, two others overboard swimming around it. And it is a ship without a captain. And everyone on board is too busy drinking and feasting and flirting and singing to know where on earth the waves are pushing them. They're fools. They're fools because they're enjoying all the sensual pleasures of this world without knowing where it all leads. And atop of the mast hangs a bunch of carrots and a man is climbing up to reach them. Yet above the carrots, we find a small but significant detail. A human skull. This is the 13th head in the painting. Unlucky in every way imaginable. The idea is that these 12 fools who think all is perfect are sailing right to their demise. The only pilot on board, the only figure leading the way, is death. But in Christ, we are not led to death. We are led to true joy and lasting eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So seriously kill your sin before it seriously kills you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for warning us, warning that we need as we all too often take our sins so casually. Forgive us for that, we pray. We need your help in this because it's hard to kill sin. We know your spirit provides us the opportunity and the empowerment to do it. And so we pray that you would be generous and show yourself all, all powerful in this way as brothers and sisters, part of this family, seek to pursue holiness and to kill the things that hold them back. Give us a deeper conviction. May your spirit prick our hearts and our conscience even more quickly as we approach the danger zone. Give us the courage to run the other direction and help us even today as we examine ourselves and look for the areas that need to be cut off. We thank you for Jesus.
and for the forgiveness that he gives, even for sinners like us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.